Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode number six of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. I hope that your 2023 is off to a great start. You know, I want to start this episode a bit different than past episodes. I want to thank the team of people that make this podcast possible. First of all, I'd like to thank my administrative assistant, Aphrodite Georgiakopoulos. She has book guests on this show all the way through August of 2023, believe it or not. Wow, that's incredible. She's been a great help. Second, I'd like to thank Alexandria Williamson. Alexandria is the researcher for this podcast and provides me with information that, that's useful to share with you. Third, I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Chris Stoll of Audio Flare Productions in Toledo, Ohio. His excellent work makes our podcast simply sound good. And fourth, I'd like to thank our past and future guest. Without you saying yes to my invitation to be interviewed, there would be no Grassroots Health Podcast. Lastly, I'd like to thank you. Yes, you, our listeners. I hope that these podcasts are useful to you and that you've learned some things by listening to them. Thanks to all of you. Today, my special guests are three Hall of Famers from the field of health education. That's my field. I'm thrilled to have them on the show and share their stories with you. If you were educated in the field of health education, or maybe you help teach others, or you've worked in the field, or you're currently working in the field, you will immediately recognize the names of these Hall of Famers. Our topic today is a very interesting and very good one. How have things changed in health education over time? An interview with Drs. Gary Gilmore, Allison Tobb, and Larry Olson. Three Hall of Famers. To start out, let's talk about health, since these three, and myself included, have made improving people's health the focus of our careers. Let me ask you a question. What is health? How would you define it? I think it was the Greek physician Hippocrates that said, health is the greatest of human blessings. So is health a blessing then? And where does such a blessing come from and who gets this blessing? Do all humans get equal blessings of health? Or maybe health is just the absence of disease. Can we measure the absence of disease in the human body? Well, that depends on the quality of the test, the quality of the machine that's used for testing, and the quality of the education and training of the one who's interpreting the test, right? Or maybe, maybe health is the perfect balance of different aspects of life, the physical aspect, mental, emotional, social, spiritual, 
vocational, or we could even add others. If that's true, Lynn, then let me ask you just one question. Let's look at spiritual health. What makes one person healthier spiritually than another? Is it a belief in a higher power? The number of times per week he or she attends religious services or activities? Is it how many minutes per week spent reading a holy book or praying? You know, such a definition of health is nearly impossible to measure. So let me ask you this. Here's another question that's really interesting. Can a C6 quadriplegic be healthy? Can someone who's dying be healthy? Well, your answers to those questions would depend on your definition of health, would it not? That's why every professional who works in the health or medicine field should have a very solid definition of health, my opinion. How can you work in health or health care or health education or public health and not even know what health is? I mean, you can't. My definition of health has changed a lot over the years. I think of health now as a resource, not as a means to an end. Having the resource of good health enables us to do what we want, when we want to do it, and it helps us perform the activities of daily living. Having good health enables us to pursue things that matters the most to us. It helps us to thrive and achieve our potential. So can a C6 quadriplegic be healthy? Can a dying person be healthy? Technically, yes. So be sure to develop your own definition. Work on it, refine it, and feel free to share it with me via email on our website. Now let me provide you with some context of how our guests fit into all this, okay? You see, most of the growth and development in the field of health education has occurred in the last 45 years or so. It really is a very young field. In those 45 years, the profession has grown up. Things have changed for the better. The role and responsibilities of health educators have also changed. In January of 1978, I was just a freshman in college at Bowling Green State University. January of 1978, the landmark role delineation project began. What was the impact of that project? Well, up until that time, no one really knew what health educators did. And just about every college and university in the United States had its own curriculum and its own way of training health educators. Put simply, there was zero there was no profession of health education. How can you have a profession if everyone's doing their own thing? There was not even a common terminology. The training of health education specialists was different by institution, and, and there was no way to certify that graduates had the same skills or competencies. But beginning in the mid-1970s, the health education profession began the process of developing the steps that were necessary to establish this credentialing process of health educators. Thus, the landmark Role Delineation Project was funded in 1978. 
Dr. Helen Cleary, a name that you may not recognize, Dr. Helen Cleary, she played a major role in this. She was the chair of the National Task Force on the Preparation and Practice of Health Educators. You say, well, what was that? Well, that was the group that prov- provided oversight for this role delineation project. Through a series of conferences, workshops, a national survey of health educators, this group determined the responsibilities, the functions, the skills, the knowledge expected of entry-level health educators. That's where it all started. And the concept of a, a generic role common to all health educators, regardless of work setting, it, this generic role emerged and, and formed the basis of the credentialing process. Finally, finally, we could say we were on the road to having a profession. So once the role of the entry-level health educator was detailed, then the next task was to translate this role into a document that degree programs in health education at colleges and universities could use. They want to use it to design a competency-based curriculum. That occurred in 1985, and it was revised in 1996. These two documents were called the framework and became the foundation for the creation of the National Center for Health Education Credentialing in 1988. We now say NCHEC for short. What an incredible moment this was for our field. The first national center to certify health education specialists was established. The certifying exam and the health education specialist that, 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 now, that we now take is called the CHES exam. It stands for Certified Health Education Specialist Exam. All three of my guests today were involved at the beginning of this organization. Dr. Gary Gilmore served on the NCHEC Board of Commissioners. Dr. Allison Taub was the first executive director of NCHEC and served for two years. And Dr. Larry Olson served on various project committees that worked to update the responsibilities and competencies of health educators. So while we're talking about my guests, let me formally introduce them, and then we'll get to the interview. First, Dr. Gary Gilmore, MPH, PhD, Ches. Dr. Gilmore is currently a professor and director of graduate community health and public health in the Department of Public Health and Community Health at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. He's been involved in the national health education credentialing process since the late 1970s, as we talked about. He's been a vice chair of NCHEC. He's chaired the competencies update project from the late 1990s to 2006. He was a member of the telephone interview panel for two of the national role delineation studies. He's community health program director and continuing education at University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. He also oversees university's role as a multiple event provider for NCHEC and continuing education contact hours. He's a member of the Wisconsin Public Health Council since 2003. He's a member of the National Council on Linkages Between Academia and Public Health Practice since 2006. And best of all, he's still teaching. 
<laughs> he told me before the upcoming interview that he wants to keep working until he's around 80 years old. Good for him. The rose between two thorns. I'm just kidding. This is Dr. Allison Taub. She has an ED and MCHES. She's a professor emerita of health education from New York University. She's had leadership roles at the state, national, international levels. She was the first executive director of NCHEC, as we talked about, and she served two years. She co-developed a website for health education professional resources. She received the 2000 Health Education Directory Award for outstanding contributions to the use of technology in our field. She was named the American Association for Health Education. That's AHI. She was named a fellow in 2010, and on and on it goes, right? These are Hall of Famers. We could spend the whole time just reading about their backgrounds. Uh, Allison is also former co-chair of, of the Society of Public Health Education School Health Accreditation Workshop, and she continues to be involved professionally as a consultant today, and she's retired, lives in Florida, but she stays very, very active. Last but not least is Dr. Larry Olson. He's a doctor, Ph. M. Ches, and has M.A.T., also after his name. I learned quite a bit about this guy that I didn't know. Did you know that Dr. Larry Olson was a really good baseball umpire? I didn't know that. In fact, he umpired the College World Series in 1977. That was a mighty fine year, I might add. That's the year I graduated from high school. I also found out he was a good football player in his past. There's quite a lineage of athletes in his family, uh, athletic prowess here and there. Even his dad, I think, was a professional wrestler. Dr. Larry Olson was a professor in the College of Graduate Health Studies at A.T. Still University of Health Sciences in Missouri. He's a fellow of the American School Health Association, ASHA, and is on the board of directors. He previously was the ASHA president in 1990. He's co-authored more than 30 textbooks and has more than 100 publications, and he's a member of the Competencies Update Steering Committee, and he's a recipient of ASHA's William A. Howe Award, as well as a Professional Service Award from AHI for outstanding service to our field. These are just some of the highlights of these three Hall of Famers. I could go on and on, as I said. But here they are, now on Grassroots Health. I hope that you like the interview. Let's listen in. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Dr. Tim Jordan. I am your host, and this is episode number six of Grassroots Health. And I'm so pleased today to have some Hall of Famers, three to be exact, three Hall of Famers from the field of health education that I have my doctoral degree in. Here we have Dr. Gary Gilmore, Allison Taub, and Larry Olson. And so, Allison, you're the thorn <laughs> between the, I mean, you're the rose between the two thorns. <laughs> so... We're going to look back today, kind of retrospectively over time, how things have changed and what's going on with these Hall of Famers. 
I'm going to try and do more of this. You know, as, as I get older, as I get towards retirement, you think about legacy and those who have shaped your career. And so I, I hope to have some more folks on. So for the sake of our younger listeners who probably don't know you, let's have each of you give a little introduction and where you're at right now and what you've been doing. Let's start with Gary. You're on my far right. So Gary, where are you at right now? Where'd you start? What year was it? Where were you when you started? What was your title? That kind of Excellent. thing. Well, thank you so much. I might mention that it did take a, a point in time uh, for me to lock into health education because I'm both a health education specialist as well as a public health epidemiologist. Um, my earliest training in health education along with epidemiology was at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health in 1968, uh, some time ago, but uh, I remember it almost like it was yesterday. Uh, I enjoyed immensely my training in public health at the University of Minnesota, and importantly, following uh, my um, uh, movement uh, from that training, uh, I went, uh, I should also mention during my training, I also worked with the uh, St. Paul Department of Public Health as a public health education specialist. Um, and then after graduating uh, from Minnesota, uh, moved into a position at the Bergen County Health Department in New Jersey as an epidemiologist and public health spe education specialist. And thereafter, I uh, did go on to the US military in preventive medicine, served for three years, and then eventually came to the University of Wisconsin at La Crosse and the University of Wisconsin system. In 1974, this is my 49th year here in the 40? University of Wisconsin. Did, did I hear that right, 49, 49 years? 49 years, and I've loved every moment. Uh, I truly uh, state that, feel that, and mean that and I'll stop right there so that others can share their backgrounds. Well, first, before we go on to Allison, I have a question for you, Gary. Did you encounter Mike Osterholm oh, at the University of Minnesota? Yes, uh, he and I trained at the same time, uh, but we didn't uh, know one another directly at that time. Shortly thereafter, uh, he and I have been uh, connecting and getting together uh, over time. I might mention that uh, he was a keynote presenter. I do a lot of work, not only in professional preparation and credentialing, but also in professional development. And uh, two years ago, I had Michael Osterholm as a keynoter for our 36th annual meeting of the Wisconsin Health Education Network. And it was, uh, as always, a sheer delight uh, to have him on board. Thank you for asking. Yeah, just to put a plug in for <laughs> Sid Rapp and his Osterholm Update podcast, which comes out every Thursday morning. It's excellent. I've listened to all, I think he's up to 115 episodes Easily. or something since the pandemic started, but it's very good. Let's go to Allison Taub. Allison, where did you start? What year was it? Where were you? And well, I actually your started off as a, a dental hygienist. Um, after high school, I, my family was a dental family, and I was encouraged to go into dental hygiene. And what I didn't realize was that 
that was really a precursor to becoming a health educator because at the time, nobody knew what a dental hygienist did. And I was always trying to explain what, what I did as a dental hygienist. And then when I finished my dental hygiene training, I went to New York University to complete my baccalaureate degree. And while I was there, uh, Marion Hamburg was the chair of the department in health education. And she actually um, spotted me one day in class and came over to me and said, would you like a part-time job? I just got a grant and I need somebody to work with me. And that was the beginning of my career in health education. Um, I started working for Marion Hamburg part-time and then eventually full-time. And I was a project coordinator for a series of grants that she received. And then she said to me one day, you know, if you want to stay in academic life, you really need your doctorate. And she was the one who encouraged me to go on and get my doctorate. Um, I got my master's in school health and my doctorate in community health education um, and ended up uh, getting a position at New York University, assistant professor in 1975, and ended up staying at New York University for almost 40 years, moving up through associate professor to full professor to department chair to assistant to the dean. And ultimately, I retired um, uh, about 15 years ago, I retired, and um, I was still involved professionally, but I had a wonderful career at New York University. I hear the little <laughs> bit of New York brogue in your voice. <laughs> so you, know, you get a little bit of uh, that New York flavor. Next, we have Larry Olson and... I know, Larry, we were chatting beforehand in the green room, so to speak. You're around, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say, I guess it's okay to say the age of guys. Larry's around 80. So when you started, what year was it? Where were you? And what was your title, Larry Olson? Well, actually, uh, thanks, Tim. I appreciate this opportunity. I actually went to uh, school at Lewis and Clark College and graduated in 1964. Uh, so I started my career basically as a high school teacher at Park Rose High School in Oregon, just outside of Portland. And uh, during that time, I was also working on a Master of Arts in Teaching at Lewis and Clark. So I finished a Master of Arts in Teaching, but in the meantime, the fellow who was uh, at Lewis and Clark said, Larry, have you heard of these public health service grants? And I said, no. And this was Mike Hosakawa, who eventually left Lewis and Clark and went to uh, Missouri. Mike told me about the public health service grant, so I started looking at them, and I said, why not? So I applied for one, and lo and behold, I came home from school one time, and uh, there was a telephone call. I was living at my grandmother's house in Portland because it was closer to Park Rose, and it was Bill Griffiths from the University of California. And Bill said, Larry, I've just received word from the public health service that if you want to come to school at Berkeley and get an MPH, uh, they will provide a public health service traineeship for you. And my grandmother thought I was having a seizure because I started jumping up and down on the <laughs> telephone saying, oh my gosh, yes, of course, I'll be there. Well, what's really funny is the next day I got a call, uh, a letter from the University of Michigan. I had been invited there also, but I had given my word to Bill Griffiths and I ended up down at Berkeley. Finished uh, where, where I was actually a classmate with Larry Green. And you'll hear more about Larry oh. later, particularly from Gary. 
Anyhow, uh, I finished at Berkeley and I went back up to Oregon because I had been offered a job at the Oregon State Department of Health. I got up there, I went to the department, and they said, well, that, that job didn't materialize. So here I am. I've got a, two master's degrees. I've got a wife, and I don't have a job, but I'm up in Oregon. So I started working with the Oregon State <laughs> System of Higher Education, teaching health education classes to inmates down in the Oregon State prison system. So I was working with the Oregon Upper Bound what, Prison. What year project. was that, Larry? What, what, 65. What year was that? 1965-66. And it was at that time that uh, uh, I actually wrote a grant with the Oregon State Department of Education uh, and got in contact with Roy Davis. And we set up a three-statewide smoking and youth community action project for Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And we brought teams of individuals from those three states to Portland for a conference uh, about how do you get youth to stop smoking. During that same period of time, uh, I started looking at, at doctoral work and Ned Johns was a person whose name always came up. And so I contacted Dr. Johns down at UCLA and lo and behold, I got another grant to go to UCLA from the Public Health Service. But when I went to UCLA in 66, I also was given a position as an associate in public health. And I, I was teaching three personal health classes every trimester at, at UCLA. So that's from there, I ended up, uh, when I finished my doctorate in, in uh, I guess I finished the doctorate, it's dated 70, but I finished in 69. But I call, got a call from Howard Hoyman at University of Illinois. He says, Johns tells me, and he had a kind of a squeaky voice, Johns tells me you can probably work with me. <laughs> I'll give you a job. 11,000, send me a telegram. Hoyman, accept offer, 11,000. So I ended up in Illinois, teaching Champaign-Urbana. During this whole period of time, I also umpired baseball. So when I got to Illinois, I started umpiring a lot of collegiate baseball and ended up in 77 working the College World Series in, in baseball. I did that for like 40 years. And after I, after I was at Illinois, I got, I got a, uh, a, a call from uh, Arizona State, and they asked me to come out to Arizona State and be the department chair. So I left Illinois and went to Arizona State. <clears throat> Stayed there for a few years, and a person who I had gone to school with, Dick St. Pierre, called me and said, Larry, we need a coordinator for our doctoral program at Penn State. Get into the car again, out to Penn State I go. Stayed at Penn State. Oh, my goodness, Penn you have been across this country every which way. Well, that's what I was going to say. See, I can't hold a job. That's the that's the thing. And <laughs> unlike my colleagues, I, I popped around. I, left, I, I actually retired from Penn State and went to Towson. I was at Towson for several years as a department chair. Got a call from uh, uh, Arizona, I'm from uh, uh, New Mexico State. Went to New Mexico State as an associate dean. I retired from New Mexico State in 15, went to A.T. Steele University, strictly 100% online programs. Left there because of some cutbacks and went to Logan University and officially retired last August 15th <laughs> after 57 years of teaching in the university environment. <laughs> That's quite a career for all of you. 
<laughs> yeah, back and forth, I would say. Well, one thing is is for certain, you know, when we listen to your background, students shouldn't feel bad about, like, not knowing what to do or, you know, they, it, so much of your future was determined by running into people, phone conversations, you know. Here's a chair offered Allison. Hey, do you want a job? You know, something about you that impressed her. So I just think we never know. And that goes to our next question about your mentors. You know, all of us have important mentors. I have important mentors. Jim McKenzie was my undergraduate advisor. A lot of you know James McKenzie. Susan Telljohn was my master's advisor. Jim Price was my doctoral advisor. So who are some of your mentors? And we're going to start with Allison this time. As you look back, who was really important well, to you, I, I think I'd say the three people that come to mind, the first one who I, I've um, already mentioned, Marion Hamburg, um, because she saw something in me very early in my career and really supported me uh, to get into the profession. And she introduced me to people in the field and she gave me opportunities to move ahead in the profession. So I'd say she was uh, a mentor. And then... Um, Helen Cleary, who was, I'd say, the the grandmother of credentialing, um, I got involved with, with the credentialing with working very closely with Helen and was always inspired by her and and um, what what she was doing for the field. And along with Helen was Peter Cortese. Uh, Peter was also very much involved with credentialing and a lot of the major things that went on in health education. And in working with all of them, I, I learned a great deal and um, developed a real strong love for the profession of health education. That's fantastic. We're going to go to Larry next, Larry Olson. Who are some of your mentors, Larry? Well, you know, I'm going to take a little bit different route to start with. Uh, other than my parents who really set the foundation, I'll talk about that later. But the person that I think I was probably my first mentor, per se, was when I was playing organized baseball. And my baseball coach was a guy by the name of Irv Jones. And every day at practice, he would take out, he would make us sit on the bench, and he would take out the rule book, and he read the rule book. And he taught us the importance of knowing the rules, following the rules, and knowing how to make the rules work for you. And that became a real advantageous kind of a thing. Uh, when I went to school at uh, at Scappoose High School, uh, a, a mentor was was uh, my high school English teacher who really taught me the importance of how to write well. And a lot of the stuff that's going on now, I'm sure Sally is turning in her turning in her grave. But when I went to school at Lewis and Clark, Warren Smith uh, was there, and and uh, Warren taught us the importance of follow again following the rules. I took athletic training courses from him. I learned how to tape, which helped me when I was coaching soccer, uh, because I could tape my kids. Uh, Warren taught me all of these kind of things. I, I, that was followed up by Mike Hosakawa, who told me about the public health service traineeships. Uh, Bill Griffiths, Burl Roberts, Dorothy Nicewander, all at Berkeley when I was there, all taught me different types of things and the importance of following through, keeping your word. Uh, I, gave, I had given my word to Bill Griffiths to go to Berkeley, and I kept that word, and that's, that's always stayed with me. Uh, when, I, when I went down to UCLA, Ned Johns, he was probably one of the kindest, gentlest persons I had ever met in my entire life. Soft-spoken, but when he spoke, you knew his word was, was 
it could be trusted 100%. Uh, this helped me develop a pattern. It was Ned who told me when I, when I did my doctoral uh, defense, the first question he asked after I finished making my presentation, he said, how many publications do you think you'll get from this? Mm -hmm. I had made up my mind that one of the things that I was going to do is by the time I retired, I was going to have more publications than Ned. I met that goal. I met that goal. <laughs> but he was just a wonderful, wonderful person, you know. But the, the ones who really, I well, think, were I, my mentors. I know I will never... I will never have more publications than my mentor. Dr. Price has no, like over 300. Jim, Jim has tons. And he's still publishing uh, in retirement, so he just keeps adding to that total. So, right. Gary, what well, about you? Who were some of your mentors? So, uh, thank you, Tim. Uh, three individuals who come to mind uh, really have to do with the blend that I was mentioning about being a health education specialist and a public health epidemiologist. Uh, the very first individual who uh, made a great impact uh, in that realm for me uh, was Dr. Gaylord Anderson, the founding dean of the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. And it was one of the uh, seven schools of public health that established that realm uh, during the mid-1940s. And I was just um, so impressed uh, with his sense of accuracy uh, he taught uh, several of the classes that I had, and I was just so impressed with the individual. He's the one who wrote to me during the summer uh, as I was applying to the University of Minnesota, and he said, uh, we have a, a public health, U.S. Public Health Service traineeship uh, for you all of the time that you're here, but you have to be here in the summer. And uh, he said, you're a part of a cohort of 12 individuals who are going to be supported, uh, but all of you need to be here uh, during the summer. And I had a position lined up, et cetera, but I can tell you with uh, talking with the individuals about this opportunity where I had the summer position lined up, they said, absolutely, uh, continue on. And as, I, as I've told my colleagues here, and I'll mention to you, Tim, uh, I've never looked back. Uh, my early uh, studies and undergraduate training were in genetics, were in the sciences, but I, didn't, I knew I didn't want to be a bench researcher. And it was Dr. Gaylord Anderson who really, um, he and I uh, connected. Uh, he taught communicable disease control, uh, the foundations of prevention, and much, much more. Uh, and so I look to him as really a founding father, if you will, uh, for my stages in my career, uh, particularly with his sense of accuracy, and I'll say more about that later. A second individual is Larry Green. Larry Green, uh, I have known since the early uh, 1970s, uh, and we connected uh, during a, a very special uh, workshop for three days that he and his, his colleagues held at Johns Hopkins University uh, in Baltimore at the time. And I was so impressed with his emphasis on evaluation. Um, and I brought him to Wisconsin probably 10 times for professional mm. development opportunities. Uh, and health educators and other health-related professionals just are so impressed uh, with 
uh, him and his good work that continues even today in his semi-retirement. Uh, he's now at the University of California, San Francisco in the medical system, uh, but he's semi-retired. And I had the wonderful opportunity, my wife and myself met with Larry uh, during the 150th uh, anniversary of the American Public Health Association meeting in Boston uh, just recently in November. And did we share <laughs> stories? I could go on, but I won't. I the bet. third, The third individual, and I usually do things in threes, uh, as my colleagues know. The, the third individual who I, I will mention to you is Helen Cleary. I had the opportunity to interact with Helen, uh, particularly in chairing the competencies update project research. And Helen at the time uh, that I came to know her uh, was uh, the uh, chairperson, uh, very, very um, uh, importantly, of the National Task Force on the Preparation and Practice of Health Educators. And that followed uh, the important uh, very first meeting in Bethesda in 1978 that she and her colleagues actually put together. Uh, I was so impressed. I was there at the first Bethesda meeting with my oldest son at the time, who was all of five years old. He's now 50 <laughs> today. But at that time, uh, I took him with me. People remarked, oh, you must have babysitting uh, responsibilities on hand. I said, oh, no, he wanted to come. And <laughs> there's more about that uh, that I'll he tell you He wanted to be with side. his dad. But in, in actuality, it was a great, great bonding experience. Uh, and I've taken all of our, awesome. our adult children uh, with me and even younger, as you now know. But Helen Cleary, as Allison articulated, uh, was at the core of role delineation. Uh, it was very clear to me that we were being inspired, mm -hmm. guided, and directed uh, under her leadership. And she never backed away from a task, a responsibility, or a caring note to those who joined her. And I'll leave it at that. We're gonna talk I'd more like about Helen Cleary and the first. Go ahead, Larry. I'd like to add one other thing. I think all of us would agree all of our students have also been our mentors. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. Yes. You bet. Yeah, they, uh, they <laughs> teach us old dogs new tricks all the time. So let's fast forward to the present, present tense, and talk about where you're at right now and what you're doing. We'll start with Larry. So where are you, Larry, and what are you doing now? Well, I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I've, As I noted before, I officially retired on the 15th of uh, last August. But I'm an associate editor for four different periodicals. So I stay pretty busy trying to uh, get people to do review articles. So any of you who are out there who are listening, if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to get involved <laughs> in this profession, I always have a need for people to review manuscripts. So uh, I go. stay busy with, uh, with those kind of manuscripts. What are the four journals, just so those listeners know? Uh, the Journal of American College Health, Online Journal of Health Education Teaching, Global Health Promotion, and in Frontiers in the Public Health Sector. Very good. So again, 
Great opportunity for those of you who are listening. Might be health education doctoral students. Might be practicing health educators. A chance for you to get involved in academia. Gary, where are you right now? Are you retired? Are you still practicing? Are you still educating? Still practicing full-time. I love what I do. uh, And quite frankly, um, I will go into my uh, 50th and more uh, years of uh, teaching, uh, being responsible for uh, public health epidemiological uh, related courses, uh, special courses that uh, I have the opportunity to teach. And one of the uh, courses more recently that I've been asked to teach has to do with an introduction uh, to public health. And I love uh, the connectivity with uh, freshmen, sophomores, and I'm also getting uh, individuals who are juniors, seniors, graduate students who uh, uh, want that kind of introduction to public health. So. It isn't only the upper division related courses that I teach, but it's all realms. Uh, And as Larry correctly pointed out, and I totally agree with, we learn so much from our students and um, their dedication. uh, And we, we really do see, and I know others can comment on this, the best and the brightest. And it's because they want to do the very best as professionals. So there's no question about the the teaching aspect. I absolutely love it, and I can't get enough of the epidemiologic connectivity with health education specialist work. I I do want to refer to the three domains. Um, uh, There's no question about professional preparation in what I do being critically important. And I I do it uh, uh, full-time, but I also have a full-time responsibility related to professional development. I'll just mention, I've mentioned one already in terms of Larry Green and his outstanding uh, work in evaluation and how I tapped into that, uh, also with Michael Osterholm. But uh, just recently, I received a grant from Uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison Thompson Center uh, to support uh, an epidemiologist uh, lead professor of epidemiology at the medical school of uh, the Mayo Medical School in Rochester, Minnesota, plus an individual from out of country on her Fulbright. And I, being a former Fulbrighter in India, uh, just could not get over her work having to do with tracking longitudinally uh, young children into their young adulthood uh, regarding good health. And what I did was bring these two individuals, uh, Dr. St. Sauver and Dr. Steinsbeck from Norway, who is at Berkeley on a Fulbright herself, and brought her here to Wisconsin uh, to develop a... um, uh, a live streamed program on primary prevention, not letting our guard down, held the event on September 23rd and 24th with the uh, Thompson Center grant uh, and uh, broadcasted uh, all over uh, the state, region, and nation uh, with their perspectives on primary prevention making a difference, not just during times of COVID-19. Uh, Sincitial, 
uh, involvement uh, with uh, respiratory disease and, of course, influenza. The third thing that I'll uh, say uh, very quickly is those three elements, uh, the uh, the uh, preparation aspect, uh, the professional preparation, the consideration about staying aligned uh, with professional development, and the importance of the three domains together that include credentialing, those three to me are the standard bearer that I enjoy so much in being here every single moment that I have the opportunity. I agree. Thank you for sharing that. Let's go to Allison. Where well, are you now, right Allison? Right now, I think I mentioned to you that um, I retired from New York University after almost 40 years being there. I've been retired now for 15 years living in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, <laughs> which is just a wonderful um, lifestyle down here. But I still continue to be involved professionally. Uh, doing professional service, uh, publishing with my colleagues. Um, but I also take time, you know, you have to practice what you preach. So I'm also a tennis player. I'm captain. I've been captain of my tennis team. I do Pilates. Um, so I try to keep healthy, as they say. Um, keeping in touch with my students. We mentioned students and so proud of so many of my students who are now, you know, in, in leadership roles in the profession, and I take great pride in the work that they're doing. And also, I might mention that even though I've been retired for 15 years, I did um, get my MCHES credential from, from NCHEC, and I continue to do the continuing education so I can renew it each time. So I just got renewed for another five years. Um, as an MCHES, so um, I support the profession in that way, um, and that's that's what I've been doing lately. Well, I tell you, what I really like about you three is you could just sit back and relax and not do anything, and everyone would say, oh, they had a great career, but you have continued to contribute, all three of you, in massive ways. In fact, Allison, you sent me today an attachment, I think it had 12 or 13 publications on it that the three of you have collaborated on. And you wouldn't have to do that. No one would think differently of you, but you continue to contribute. So we really appreciate that. Let's go to the 1970s. I want to I think back for a minute. I want you to think back to the 1970s, particularly around 1973, 74. There was a kind of a first revolution in public health. And we began to think about prevention and so forth. And at that time, I remember I was in high school. I wasn't even thinking about you know being a health educator, but teaching it a little bit later, it always said you know health education is a merging profession. It's an emerging profession. There were, we weren't really doing an official profession, I guess. So what was happening in the 1970s that created this demand for a job role, an official job role? Who'd like to answer that question? So I'll start it off uh, briefly, uh, Tim. Uh, there's no question about the early 70s. Remember, uh, the Vietnam War uh, era was taking place. Uh, we were, uh, we had all experienced one way or another, whether it was historically or actually the 1960s times of challenge, uh, 
there was quite a, uh, you know, we, we talk about challenges politically, et cetera, that, that take place. So much um, a challenge, and, and in some cases, not all cases, turmoil that needed to be addressed. And health education was really uh, emerging during that time uh, based on uh, all of the uh, remembrances and ramifications that I've uh, been a part of and studied and experienced. Uh, and importantly, uh, it grew. Health education programs throughout the nation grew over 300 programs. And I'll just take that as a, as a stepping off point, if I may. Uh, the programs were very distinctive, but they were also different. And one of the states- I, I think that's when our program, our undergraduate program was started, 1972. And it started as a Department of Community Health, yes. degree in community health. And I think you're right. I mean, we did things differently mm -hmm. from Bowling Green. Absolutely. We did things differently from Indiana. We did things differently from the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. Everything was different. It, it was very different. And so it was becoming clear to me, to others, um, no question about it, there, there needed to be some stability. And we did not have a mooring a foundation in place uh, regarding things like competencies, uh, and uh, certification of individuals. And to make a long story short, in that milieu of the late 60s, early 70s, with everything that was happening, not just in the United States, but globally, it was very clear that we needed to establish a foundation. That led uh, to people like Helen Cleary and others saying over the time of uh, what can we do about that regarding the sheer curricula changes and differences? That led to the first Bethesda meeting in February of 1978. And fortunately, that was one of the elements that really captured our interest at that meeting. Additionally, certification uh, emerged. Uh, so curricular uh, structure and certification uh, emerged as two major issues that uh, were uh, needing attention and needing it uh, from a very formal science-based uh, approach. And consequently, it led to the task force that I mentioned that Helen chaired being established, uh, which became incorporated in uh, 1981. Uh, it led to actually a second uh, meeting eight years later back at Bethesda uh, in 86. Uh, but it also led to the, con the uh, consideration, as Allison pointed out, the importance of professional development. All three of us are MCHES certified. We believe in certification and the value of certification is staying current. So we had that currency need as a profession and as professionals as well. That Let's talk about that, Allison. I, I think you were involved with Helen Cleary in the first, maybe the first role delineation project in 1979. So in this mass, Milo, as Gary said, there's people that 
are saying, well, you're not really a profession. You're not meeting specific things. Um, we didn't know what everyone was doing. Every college, university was doing it slightly differently. And so someone along the way said, hey, we need to find out what health yeah. educators are doing out there. So well, I'll, I'll let you take it from Gary there. Well, I'll build on what Gary was saying, that the, the issue at that time was there was an identity crisis in health education. Nobody knew what a health educator did, that nobody, even health educators, couldn't <laughs> tell what they did. There was no no agreement as to what health educators did. Uh, as Gary was saying, there was no coordination in academic programs. Every institution was doing their own thing. And at that time, I was myself, you know, looking for a doctoral dissertation. And I had, as I mentioned earlier, I came out of a field in dental hygiene that nobody knew what a dental hygienist did. So I decided for my doctoral <laughs> dissertation that I was going to study health education as a profession and see the extent to which health educators thought we had the characteristics of a profession. That was basically what my dissertation was about. And um, from there, that began my interest in in health education and trying to advocate, you know, for the profession. Um, and this concern about, you know, the lack of professional standards and the lack of um, comprehensive preparation led to the role delineation study. Some of our leaders in the field at the time got some federal funding to, um, to start the role delineation project. And, uh, uh, and from what I understand and what I've taught before, that project involved the development and testing of a survey, correct? And we sent the survey out to how many health um, educators? I don't do you remember, remember the the numbers uh, of how many were were in it, but um, the the uh, the project was federally funded, and um, it. It uh, was preceded by, as Gary was talking about, the first Bethesda conference, um, where where yes. the the issue that I had talked about was addressed. It was a, a workshop to look at the commonalities and differences in what health educators do um, in a variety of settings. And out of that uh, conference, as Gary mentioned, the National Task Force on the Preparation of of uh, Health Educators which was the planning committee for that conference, they uh, were the ones who took charge to, to move ahead and uh, with exploring whether we'd get, have a credentialing system to, to look at how we might credential health educators. Larry, what's your, what's your memory of those years? What was well, going on I'm, in, I'm in your I'm going to take a little bit Jack. I agree with everything that Gary and Allison have said, but the one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is the economic issue. We were looking yeah. at third-party reimbursement for health education services. And by having some sort of a, a, a certified health education specialist, we thought the insurance companies would begin to reimburse for those kinds of services because we were making a pitch to the insurance companies that if people stay well, they're going to save money. They're going to save money. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was over in Puerto Rico one time, and we did that sort of thing with Johnson & Johnson. And lo and behold, a company, by hiring a health educator, cut the amount of insurance claims by 60% in a given year. And I just made a suggestion wow. to him. I said, you know, if you want to keep this going, why don't you take that money that you would have had to spend for insurance premiums 
and give it back to the employees. They did it, and their rates of employee uh, illnesses and so forth kept going down and down, and they hired more health educators and so forth. Johnson & Johnson was the company. Mm-hmm. I know I was part of a, a paper with one of my colleagues from the PhD program we wrote when Michigan, I think, was the first state to have their blues. You know, we had the, the, the blue insurance companies. Um, they gave yes. payback for mm-hmm. health education yeah. services. Um, and I don't know if that's still true. What's the current status on that? Who would like to address the current status? Do we still have financial incentives to hire health educators or not? Well, it isn't just for health educators. Uh, It includes health educators depending upon the state uh, and the the realm of professionalism that you're looking at. Here in Wisconsin, uh, we literally uh, worked with Blue Cross Blue Shield when they wanted to go for profit. And what we did was establish a foundation at our two medical schools, that uh, and one at Milwaukee, the Medical College of Wisconsin, and the other at Madison, uh, having to do with the School of Medicine and Public Health. And they now uh, have established in escrow millions of dollars uh, that they provide grants for, uh, for projects of value and worth that include health education work. Just very quickly, Uh, We received a $300,000 grant from that source, from uh, UW-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health, uh, to infuse motivational interviewing into our curriculum uh, across the state to obviously include our campus, but others as well. Uh, So there have been some unique uh, formats uh, for infusing incentives and incentivizing good health. That's very I good. Have to give yeah, a I shout think out the, to, uh, Sorry. I think we have to give a shout out to ahead. Ford Motor Company because they had a they had some grants from from Blue Cross Blue Shield and one of the very first health educators ever hired uh, to uh, in business and industry was Beverly Ware. One of my colleagues from yes. from UCLA, and she went yes. there. And Ford Motor Company started a wellness program that became a model for a lot of business and industries across the United States. And uh, it was because of some of the incentives that Blue Cross Blue Shield provided to Ford Motor Company. I believe there are remnants of those programs that Beverly started way, way, way back when, still in in operation in Ford Motor Company. And I'm not trying to give yeah, a, that's <laughs> a awesome. commercial award. <laughs> That's all right. We have to give credit where credit is due, right? So let's let's fast forward. Then um, we had the Roll Delineation Project around 1979, and then about maybe nine years later, as I recall, around 1988, we had the first credentialing National Health Education National Commission of Health Education credentialing. We had the first exam. I remember some some people were grandfathered in, and so. Um, how was NCHEC, the National Commission for Health Education Credentialing, how was NCHEC formed? And who were the leaders of the movement? Who'd like to take that one? I'd like to turn it over to Allison because uh, she actually volunteered 
uh, her time yeah. as one of the staff members of that uh, early foundation. Allison? Yeah, well, um, I guess we have to mention some of the work that, and I'll do it very quickly, between uh, the Rose Delineation Project and when NCHEC was formed, because during that period there was the Birmingham Conference, which was a major conference for um, institutions that prepared health educators. Um, and that was to look at, to try to see what was going on in colleges and universities. And Allison, that what was year in was the Birmingham Conference? The Birmingham. In, uh -huh, that was in Birmingham, right. Alabama. February of 1981. Okay. Yeah, Richard yeah. Windsor, I think, was And um, following that, um, there was a... Uh, the National Task Force on the Preparation and Practice of Health Educators, which was kind of spearheading everything at that point, um, built on the Rural Delineation Project and said, we really need a curriculum framework, or some something to guide colleges and universities and how to use the results from the Rural Delineation Project. So this curriculum framework, a draft was, was uh, developed and a group of us were trained, about 12 of us were trained to do regional workshops to have uh, faculty come and learn about the outcome of the Rural Delineation Project and be trained and how to use the framework. And then we get to the uh, second Bethesda conference, which happened in 1986. And um, by that point, I was deep into, <laughs> deep into the whole project of credentialing. Um, and this, the purpose of the second Bethesda conference in 86 um, was to have the profession decide whether they wanted to continue with the development of a credentialing system and what kind of system it should be. Um, and as an outcome of that conference, it was very clear that the profession wanted a credentialing system for individuals and they wanted the type of credentialing to be certification and that they wanted some form of credentialing for professional preparation programs, but there were already in existence at that time a number of agencies that were doing credentialing of academic programs. So um, the National Task Force was charged with trying to develop this whole system. And at that point, I was on the National Task Force for the Preparation and Practice of Health Educators. I was the secretary. And um, so I was very much involved with all the meetings that went on to try to design this credentialing system. Um, and I guess uh, the, during the work of all this, we had very intensive meetings where um, we designed the structure of, of NCHEC, the, having the three components that Gary referred to, um, certification, uh, coordinating professional preparation and professional development. And those became the three branches of NCHEC. Uh, as NCHEC was uh, set up, um, Anna Skiff and I worked very closely with the Professional Examination Service, um, and they, they provided initial support for us to establish the grandparenting phase and to start the development of the certification exam. So I, it ended up that I took a sabbatical from New York University for a year, and I volunteered as the first executive director of NCHEC um, and helped to spearhead 
getting all, everything in place, the exam and the grandparenting. I remember sitting hours looking at applications of people who wanted to be initially certified in the grandparenting phase of it. Um, and uh, that was that was really the beginning of it. And then I, I continued for another year after my sabbatical was over and finally to- told the board that they had to hire somebody, that it, it, that it was too much for somebody <laughs> with a full-time job. And um, I was going to say you would <laughs> you would need to take a sabbatical to do all so that work. So I was work, actually so. a vo- the volunteer executive director, the first executive director for two years, and then uh, you know we had a series of um, of executive directors, you know, after that. So let's talk about Menchek. Um, you know, we're go ahead, Larry. I was going to say we'd be a little remiss if we didn't. Uh, throw a shout out to Metropolitan Life Insurance Company and then Vice President Clarence Pearson. And they were instrumental in uh, getting the National Center for Health Education, not credentialing, but the National Center for Health Education, which was headed by Clint Bruce and Lloyd Colby, which led to uh, a, a national curriculum project, Growing, Growing Healthy, as well as uh, the uh, uh, National Center for Health Education Credentialing, Inc. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to Thank make sure you that, for that, that plug and Clarence and Clint and uh, Lloyd got mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Lloyd Colby is a name from our past. He's obviously did his, his doctoral program at University of Toledo, mm-hmm. along with David Lloyd Sleet, Colby actually handed the, the gavel of the American School Health Association over to me in 1990. Lloyd was the president of the American School hey. Health Association, and I took over in 1990. And I think that's when we first met. That's fantastic. Yeah, he's a fantastic guy. He's been back to UT. I think we had a like a Hall of Fame day where he came back and spoke to our students, and uh, this is probably a decade ago. But so let's let's look to the future a little bit and uh, peer into your crystal ball that has, as Mike Osterholm says, is two inches of mud caked on it, and we can't see very clearly. But let's let's look into the future a little bit. What forces in U.S. society do you see? changing how future health educators are trained, uh, how are they educated? Um, who would like to take on that question? What, what's going on in our world that, I mean, we have to train people now f- to practice for 10 years almost or more. That's kind of a scary thought because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But what's going on now that you may think influence how people are trained? I think it's critical to build some uh benchmarks into our curriculum, our training, and that includes uh, good science. Uh, No matter where an individual is uh, thinking that they're going to go uh, through their profession and their careers, um, we've got to make sure that good science is at the core. And the three of us um, uh, hearken back to that uh, again and again, Tim, as a starting point, um, you know, uh, what is behind uh, next steps that are uh, postulated and, and actually taken? With that as, as kind of a founding point, the next thing I'd like to say, I, I think it's critically important that uh, when we um, uh, come together with our candidates in our programs, when we come together as colleagues, 
there needs to be that um, symbolism and actuality of greater respect for every individual with whom we encounter. Uh, and that respect is not only among those of us who are in a training phase. I think that respect needs to go out. I know it needs to go out when we talk about the diverse audiences and individual uh, representatives from various communities. Uh, uh, that sense of diversity and mutual respect must be a part of the context of quality education. The third thing that I'll say uh, is something that I believe in to the core. I mentioned it briefly earlier in talking about Dr. Gaylord Anderson, and it has to do with the consideration of accuracy. We always need to know what our sources are, uh, and we need to spend time in uh, mining those unique sources uh, that we can use and depend on until good science uh, may uh, indicate otherwise. I believe that accuracy goes to the core of who we are and what we demonstrate from a role modeling perspective uh, as we interact with one another as colleagues, but also as we interact with the world around us. I agree, but we live in a world and society that rejects research and rejects science, in many ways rejects accuracy. They want to believe what they read on Facebook or what their friend told them or that type of thing. And so how do we teach future graduates to deal with that kind of world that doesn't respect research? I'll mention very quickly that um, uh, if we uh, come from a perspective of um, having our uh, sources in place and we demonstrate that, uh, it makes a great difference to individuals. And I'll also mention big difference between misinformation and disinformation. The mm -hmm. intent of the latter uh, is to misinform, uh, and that's unfortunate. And I think, again, it goes back to the relationship building that is a part of the glue, the fabric, uh, that we're all about as educators, as colleagues, as friends, uh, and as individuals who believe in a better society. People can see that in individuals today, and when they see role modeling taking place, whether or not it's intentional or just something that is imbued within us as individuals, uh, people pick up on that. Mm-hmm. Anyone yeah. else want to tackle that question? How do we, uh, how do yeah, we face Tim, the future I, I challenges? I want to pick up on what you were saying because it reminds me, uh, years ago I used to teach consumer health education. And, of course, then the sources were different mm -hmm. than what we have now with all the um, you know, social media and everything else. But I was thinking during the pandemic, um, if that wasn't a time for health education specialists to shine, we should have been right in there, you know, dealing with the misinformation, with the disinformation, helping people to um, be able to make good decisions for themselves. I mean, the role of, of health education specialists could not have been more pertinent during the pandemic. And while there were a lot of, you know, good, there was a lot of work done, 
I still think that we could have had a much more impactful role. So I guess for the future, what I would say is that health education specialists have to advocate. They have to advocate for and they have to form coalitions and they have to um, really advocate for what we do. I mean, the skills that we have are just so important and I I don't think that we're recognized uh, enough for what we can do and the impact that we can have. I would agree. Larry? I'm also a bottom liner on some of this and it's it's, uh, pretty scary. We need to educate children. We need to have school health education. Jeff Clark and I conducted a study a few years back, and I would venture to say that although Gary mentioned at one point there were like 300 professional preparation programs, my guess is that number has dwindled to probably the vicinity of 150, if that many. And it's even worse in the area of programs that are specifically training doctoral level individuals in school health. When Jeff and I did our study, there were basically only three programs in the United States. One of them had 26 students. The other two had no students. Toledo's dropped its school health program, unfortunately. The program that is still viable right now, training doctoral level school health educators, is Kent State. And kudos to them. The problem is... These people were not being hired by universities because the schools weren't hiring certified, qualified school health educators. As a result, when we tried to separate health education and physical education, all of a sudden it started going back together. There was a movement where the two disciplines separated and now they're all moving back together. So what happens is in the physical education programs, they get a course in maybe nutrition, a course in human sexuality, and a couple of other content things. But the concept of administration and the pedagogy for health education is absent from these kinds of programs. We need to advocate to get doctorally trained school health personnel and get those people who graduate from those programs hired in the schools. If we educate our kids... It's those first few years. Mom and dad do a lot. And as Gary mentioned, the misinformation and the incorrect information (coughs) that's going out there, this is being fed to the children. We need to fight that at the lowest level in the schools. Yeah, here, here to that. I call that moving upstream, right? Moving upstream to talk about those kind of things with the youngest of the young and shape their minds. And so... Um, I know we didn't yeah, talk about this, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. Yeah. What's that? I said, what would happen if the salmon didn't move upstream? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We wouldn't have any salmon to eat. So let's talk about, uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have this on any question list or anything, but I just want to talk to you as friends about this. Um, you know, enrollment across the board, across colleges, is down 15%. We could say it's the pandemic, it's financial, whatever. As Larry pointed out, school health programs like the one I graduated from, I graduated from a K-12 comprehensive school health program at Bowling Green. But programs are often tied to people. And once people leave, once mm-hmm. all my professors left, Clay Williams... Jim McKenzie, you know, once they start leaving, then the program 
left. Same at Utilita when Susan Teljohn left, our school health program also is retired. So with the decreased enrollment across the board, increased polarization of political parties, this week we had a historic election of a Speaker of the House, I think it hadn't occurred since 1850-something. His first speech, he said, we need to rid education of woke people. I thought to myself, what does woke really mean? So I looked it up. Woke means being awake, knowing about structural racism, knowing about the impact of poverty on health. And so I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm proud to be woke. <laughs> so, you know, I'm very proud to be woke, Professor. So what do we do in this kind of situation where we have Republicans all across the land trying to do away with tenure? We have decreased enrollment. We have political polarization. We have a Speaker of the House that wants to do away with woke professors. What do we do? And Larry said we educate the young, but I want to hear from Allison and Gary. Allison, well, what do we do? I think part of it is that as academics, um, maybe we're not so good at running our shops as businesses. And, you know, you talked about the fact that um, it's true that when individuals leave institutions and they're not replaced, then all of a sudden the program folds. As soon as our leaders left some of the key programs and they weren't replaced. And um, yep. I, rem I remember uh, talking at our institution, what are we going to do to have a succession plan here? You know, that those of us who were there now are not going to be here forever. And how do you, how do you run your academic program like a business? That it's got to go on forever. So, you know, it may take a little bit of different thinking for people who are in, you know, academia, as well as, as I said before, my theme is always advocating for the profession and, and what and the value of what health education specialists do and linking that in. And advocacy is a is a new competency. Well, advocacy and communicating, and um, yeah, that yeah. so that that would be um, my thought. I agree. I think academia needs to run itself more like a business and have succession plans. Think about leadership. Um, you know what happens mm -hmm. when I retire next year? Because yeah. all the death and dying curriculum go away that I inherited from Jerry Fulton mm -hmm. and have kept up and. Those, those 23 years, I don't know, I don't know. Gary, well, what do you think? As an example, we actually have built into our public health department here uh, succession planning. And uh, it, it comes out in our faculty meetings, it comes out in our annual plans as faculty that uh, we put forth, uh, and it does make a difference. Uh, our uh, university is stable. Uh, it has not changed for a decade. Uh, we don't foresee it, uh, the bottom uh, dropping out uh, uh, whatsoever. And we do believe that advanced planning is absolutely critical. So I think that's the starting point. But the, but the, yeah. other, the other critical point that I think needs to come forth is that we're more than classroom entities, uh, and we're not um, uh, individuals who have to be um, aligned solely with a classroom structure. A lot of uh, the classes that I teach actually get K-12 
candidates out to the community. And I think greater community context and connectivity is absolutely essential. Uh, when uh, candidates come into my classes, they expect to have some type of community connection long before they're talking about internships or preceptorships. Um, and so we have a very successful uh, connection arm with our greater community, not just because of a single faculty member, myself and a few of my colleagues, but we actually have a unit within our university uh, regarding community outreach. Uh, and that uh, is uh, something that I think we could all uh, do more with uh, in thinking about more of a holistic approach rather than a singular site-oriented approach to true education. I agree. If you're just tuning in, we're listening. We've been talking to and listening to three Hall of Famers from the field of health education, Gary Gilmore, Allison Taub, and Larry Olson. And my last question for you today is one that talks about your legacy. How would you like to be remembered? That's a really good question. So we're going to start with Larry Olson. How do you want to be remembered? Well, early on in this podcast, I, I mentioned, uh, and you, you followed up by saying, hey, We've all retired. Well, Gary hasn't retired per se, but we've stayed involved. <laughs> At the end of many of my presentations, I give three, three pieces of information. Get involved, stay involved, make a difference. I got involved. Yep. I think I've stayed involved, and maybe in a small way, I've made a difference. Very good. Allison, Tom, how would you want to be remembered? How would you like well, to be remembered? Well, I, I guess um, based on what I've said earlier, um, I'm an advocate for the profession. I've always been an advocate for the profession. Um, I've tried to make contributions to the profession in professional preparation and professional service and, and, and publications. And I... I guess the other thing is I, I've been a tireless volunteer. I mean, forever, forever volunteering. I think we've all been tireless volunteers. But I think the thing probably that um, I'm most proud of is my students and, you know, being a mentor to them. Um, and even now, you know, when I hear from them, it's always good to, to hear about the impact that our time together had. So that's Fantastic. Dr. Gary Gilmore, how would you like to be remembered? Well, I have three things I'd like to share in this regard. Um, <laughs> three? Only three? Yes, three, three, for the, three for the time period we have. Uh, number one, I, I'd like to be uh, remembered uh, not only um, as uh, retirement someday occurs, um, but I'd like to be remembered first and foremost as a person of integrity. It's my highest value. Uh, it was imbued in my uh, family and um, family members over the years, uh, family that uh, I have been fortunate enough to, uh, to have with my dear wife uh, as we head into our, this year, our 52nd year anniversary together. Uh, but integrity uh, is something that you don't 
uh, uh, implant. It is something that's infused in an individual through observation, through um, a caring perspective, and uh, that integrity is coming out in our uh, children, uh, adult children. We're an empty nest, of course. Our grandchildren, and hopefully, will uh, come through with our great grandchildren as well. The second thing that that I would say is, I don't do this intentionally. But it just happens, and I do believe it has become a habit, which I refer to as a highly organized, hyphenated, automatic behavior that becomes intensified over time. And that has to do with the idea of giving back to the greater good. I, I cannot tell you, I cannot express in words what it means to me to give back to the greater good every single day. And I don't do it uh, in a boastful way. Uh, it is something that uh, literally becomes a highly organized automatic behavior that becomes intensified over time. And I absolutely um, find great joy in that. Uh, the final thing that I must say uh, is thirdly, I do hope to be remembered as a, uh, uh, a loving husband, a dad, a granddad, and as I said earlier, uh, eventually a great-granddad as well. And thank you for asking, Tim. Well, it's been fantastic to have each of you on. Um, I plan to to show this podcast for extra credit to my <laughs> doctoral students. So I, I, I want to uh, I want you each to say something to them. If you're a doctoral student in health education right now, what advice do you have for these fine individuals that are in our doctoral program and across the country that might be doctoral students in health education? What advice, we're going to start with Larry, what advice do you have for these doctoral students? Listen carefully, follow your dream, and I don't remember who said this, but when you come to a fork in the road, take it. You never know what opportunity is going <laughs> to lie on that fork. <laughs> take the fork in the road. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right, Allison, what would you like to say to any well, students I, that might I be listening? I would say um, follow your passion and some advice that was given to me years and years ago is to find something that you love to do and get somebody to pay you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and pay you to do it. Gary Gilmore, what would you like to say to any students who might be listening? Dear students, uh, and I mean this from the heart, I'll share with you one point uh, as we come to closure today. And it's an African adage that um, I uh, actually um, discovered uh, a few decades ago, and it, it, it looms and lives within me, and hopefully with you as well. Uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. The one word mm. I would leave with you is the importance, the criticality of collaboration and connectivity such as we've articulated today. Go forth together. Well, we're going to stop with that advice. That's awesome. Thank you so much 
for each of you for being here today on Grassroots Health. This has been Dr. Gary Gilmore, Allison Taub, and Larry Olson, three Hall of Famers in health education. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Tim. Take care. All the best. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. The 1795 Group is very happy to tell you about Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble podcast, produced and distributed by Lemonada Media. You know, every day it seems like the world is on the brink of a crisis. There are just so many serious issues. But you can join Andy Slavitt and various experts on his podcast to make sense of it all. Andy's been called the outsider's insider for a reason. I personally believe he knows everyone. As a former White House advisor, author, crisis response leader, Andy simply finds the right helpers to get us moving forward together, smarter and calmer. Get in the bubble today. In the Bubble podcast is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.